do sit down. We're just about to have some tea. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream. Scream for your lives. Hey weirdos, the kettle's boiled, welcome to Tea for Terror, where we take a favourite horror film and dissect it over a nice cup of tea. I'm your host, Andrew Graves, and my guest today was invited here ages ago, and to think he hesitated. Welcome, Matt, aka Thick Richard, how you doing? I'm very good, Mr Graves, how are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's quite pleasant now. The rain stopped. I don't know what it's like uh, where you are. It's not bad. It's, yeah, pretty sunny. Mm. Yeah. Now then, um, yeah, um, Mr. Matt, aka Thick Richard. Uh, we uh, now. I think most people will know you from uh, the kind of performance poetry scene, and I know that's definitely where I know you from. Um, cause I, I, I used to, well, I used to do performance poetry a while back and, um, uh, I, I stopped doing it and, and I can, I can tell you one main reason why I stopped doing it was, uh, c cause I came to see you. <laughs> no, 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 I mean that in a good way in that, you know, I think if you're doing something, you know, you should endeavor to do the best that you can and you know and i kind of came to see you and i and i just kind of decided on the spot i'm you know as a um as uncle monty says in with nail and i i shall never play the dane and i just i just realized that there's no fucking way i can ever be that good and i'm not i it's kind of like when you get all these shit sort of live at the apollo comedians and then you watch fucking Stuart Lee and you think, why the fuck are they bothering? And I and I kind of and I <laughs> and I thought, well, that's kind of what it felt like for me. It was a bit of it wasn't a you know, you'd think that'd be quite a depressing thing, but it was kinda of, it's kind of a relief thinking, you know what I mean, I ain't gotta do this anymore because someone else has got it covered. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's because I think what you do, I mean, if you, you sit here to the uninitiated and you sit here and you balloon on about sort of performance poetry scene because let's 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 be honest there's a lot of fucking shit on that scene you know oh, yeah. um and and and, and you know, a lot of people outside who've not really dabbled in that will think well you know all poetry's crap it, it's not there's some really good stuff out there yeah. but i i just think that it's 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 very difficult to describe what you do because it's not it isn't kind of traditional poetry it's not traditional performance poetry it it completely stands out and and i use this term really um you know i i i don't use this term loosely but i i i really would describe what you do as genius because i don't i don't see anybody else coming anywhere near what you do it's just piss funny it's sharp as fuck it's brilliantly written it's honestly get the chance to see thick richard go and see him because it's fucking great yeah listen to mr graves yeah, yeah. uh well that was like uh the best guilt trip compliment i've ever been given is that it you're never gonna go back to performing again or? i don't i don't think so do, do, do you see the thing is, i mean yeah all right I'm, I'm 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 kind of exaggerating a little bit the thing is as well for me um i did I did this thing called God Save the Teen, which yeah. I was really proud of and I really liked it. And um, and I just thought, well, that's it. <laughs> I've said what I wanted to say and I don't really, you know, I, I, I'm not saying if, if you can do it and you want to keep doing that Edinburgh show every year because that's what you're supposed to do, then do that if you want to do that. I'm not stopping anybody. For me, I just thought, I've got it all off my chest in one thing and I don't really want to revisit it. You know what I mean? It's like some bands should probably only make one album and then retire, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, but... Well, yeah. I just got back from uh, the Morecambe Poetry Festival. Yeah, yeah, that's right. How did that go? Oh, it was excellent. 
Uh, yeah, like really, really good. And the lineup. I mean, do you know Matt Panesh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, if he says he's going to do something, he does it. And uh, he, mo- he moved up to Morecambe about eight years ago, and I went up to see him, and I was like, why, why Morecambe, mate? And he's he's like, oh, I'm going to change the cultural landscape of Morecambe with theatre. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you will, because, you know, he always does what he says. Um, and last year was good. Like, last year was just great, but this year was better, I think, maybe because people sort of, like, knew what to expect of it a bit more. But it's not often that... I think there's probably something else like it in the country, but if there is, it's probably down south, and I've never been invited. <laughs> so, but this, it's like, you know, the coming together of all the performers and stuff, and just getting that opportunity to hang around with everybody and just watch everybody, and it was it's just great. It's ace. Uh, I had to write down a list of the people who were actually on, because uh, otherwise I wouldn't remember it. But it was like Peter Temp, uh, Tiller Stockbroker, Claire Ferguson Walker, who uh, I own ground with Lowe's. She was fucking hilarious. Dave Viney, Henry Normal, uh, Brian Bilson. Is it Bilson? I can never remember how to pronounce his name. Sort of like online. So, uh, Donald Jenkins and the Bourne Lippy Lot. Uh, Caroline Duffy was on. Uh, Roger McGough. Jerry oh, wow. Potter, Jack, Jackie Hagan, watching Jackie Hagan back on stage because she had a really shit lockdown. Yeah, she did. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was just nice. And there's loads of other people whose names I can't remember, but yeah. It, it yeah, was Henry Normal's good. I really rate Henry Normal. I, I, yeah. I, I've done stuff with him a few times, but yeah, he's, he's great, Henry's. Yeah. So, I mean, how would I, because I've clumsily tried to sell you to people, um, but how would you describe what you do? And why is it different to what other people are doing? Uh, I'm the worst person to ask that. <laughs> like having to write the, the, the blog and the bio and everything. Um, I don't know. I just sort of like do whatever the fuck I want. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I go about it. If it seems like a good idea, go for it. Uh, next year will be the 25th anniversary of performing under the name of Thick Richard. I did other weird stuff wow. before like, doing that. but uh, So at the minute I'm doing something with a... Uh, I built a robot out of all the shit around my house. Which, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I teach it how to write AI poetry on stage, and it it generates its material on a till roll that comes out of its crotch. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's about as weird as it sounds. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing at the minute. I yeah. Uh... I bumped into, uh, I sound like I'm name dropping now, but I was I was meeting up with somebody who I knew from Nottingham and they'd not been back to Nottingham for a while and they just so happened to be out at the, t- the time with uh, Terry Christian. And so oh, I yeah. ended up inadvertently having a pint with Terry Christian. And one of the first things he said to me when I mentioned poetry, he says, oh, f- f- fucking Thick Richard. Thick Richard's fucking amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, you get about <laughs> Um, yeah, honestly, it's just, uh, you know, Matt, Matt's a, a very sort of a, uh, not willing to push himself. But honestly, it's it's unbelievably good. If you ever get a chance to see Thick Richard, go and see Thick Richard. I was Last time I saw Thick Richard, it wasn't actually a kind of poetry gig. It was him supporting a, uh, it was the Lovely Eggs, wasn't it? The, uh, the yeah. band. And it, in, you know, you've got a, a group of people who are there to see a band perform and Thick Richard comes on as support and there's, there's about three seconds where people realise it's poetry and you can kind of see their faces dropping. But then about five seconds later when they realise what it is, it's like you've got that audience in the palm of your hand. It was, that, it was just a magical experience to see that happening. It's fan, fantastic. fantastic. <laughs> Cheers. So, uh, Matt, um, here we, this is a tea for terror. So, um, when what was your entry point into horror? Then, when did you first start getting into horror films? Uh, very young, probably about four years old, early eighties. I remember my dad coming home with a video player because he'd gotten a video of the the young ones. Uh, so he's got a video player so we could watch it. Then, like Friday afternoon, we watched all the young ones in one go, which was ace anyway. Then the next day, would have been a Saturday, we took a walk into Northington. We went to the Jack and the Beanstalk video shop. And my mum and dad said to me and my sister, you choose a film that you want to watch, and we're going to choose a film that we want to watch. So me and my sister chose Sport Goofy, and my mum and dad chose American Werewolf in London. And we went home, and we all watched Sport Goofy. 
And then we all immediately watched American Wealth in London. And I remember it being even more entertaining than the young one from the night before. I remember being really impressed that Rip Mail was in it because it gave it some weird kind of context. Um, I remember being pretty freaked out by the bit where he opens his eyes in the bed in the woods and when all those alien mutants come in and shoot up the living room real nice. Uh, but I don't remember anything about Sport Goofy. And it was like, it's not like a loss of innocence or uh, what is it, like desensitization. You were talking to somebody else on one of these episodes and they were saying about the realization of the effort that goes into horror films compared to sort of soap operas and kids' TV. And it was like that. It was, it was, I was like, this is what I'm into now. Um, and my dad was a bit of a sort of like socialist, anti Thatcher, you know, campaigner in the 80s. And it was like his one man crusade against uh, Mary Whitehouse to allow me and my sister to watch whatever fucking horror films that we wanted, just as like, you know, a bit of a rebellion. Um, so through the 80s, when I was younger, I was into like the kind of supernatural ghost story stuff, the Stephen King films and all that kind of thing. Uh, I think the one film that I probably shouldn't have watched that affected me sort of nightmares wise uh, was Poltergeist 2 with uh, Preacher Payne. Yeah. That guy ruined my night's sleep probably up until about the age of 14. Uh, and it got to a point where my sister was saying, like, you know, you need to kind of, like, humanise this bloke, maybe find another film that he was in so that you can accept that he wasn't <laughs> just a dead man walking around speaking, he was just an actor. So I did, and I looked into it. And when the internet came around, I eventually found out that the reason why he looked like he was dying is because he was dying. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the reason why the big fight at the end of the film didn't happen, because he was dead, like he wasn't there to do it. Um, but then also, like before that, when I was around about 14, which was when the nightmare stopped, I found out that he was uh, Julian Beck, his name was, uh, a performance artist and a poet. Yeah, yeah. So he was most known for, sort of like in the early 70s, late 60s, he was the dancer for The Doors. So <laughs> I started thinking, well, if I was a bit older and I could have gone to see The Doors... Preacher Kane from Poltergeist 2 would have been the best. <laughs> It'd have been Jim Morrison doing the whole Chaz Smash routine. Like the, the key point of the doors. So then the nightmare stopped because it was like, if he did appear in my fucking dreams, I'd just pop on, light my fire, and he'd just start wigging out with his arms everywhere, <laughs> make my escape. Um, also, this doesn't relate really to horror films, but it's definitely horror. Sort of like mid 80s when I was about five or six. Uh, was when the Garbage Pail Kids stickers came out. And I've been obsessed with them for my whole life. Do you remember those? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so, uh, I don't know. There's a weird generational gap where some people remember them. Maybe they're too old or too young and they don't. But these little stickers depicting uh, children, sometimes babies, suffering awful deaths or mutilation and self-mutilation. Really, really graphic. Beautifully illustrated the first two series were by a guy called uh, john pound um so for i built up a good collection of like the original uk series and then when i was about 10 years old they ended up getting accidentally binned uh which was a trauma for me so i spent most of my life until youtube came, uh, ebay came around and i realized i could start buying them and i've now got apart from a couple of variation cards i've got the fucking lot now but there was a period in my life where if I was talking with somebody, I'd be like, do you know the guy? Do you remember garbage pockets? Have you got any? Do you want to sell them? And I dragged back <laughs> loads. Um, and there was one point where I was like, still in primary school, just after I'd lost them all. And I was talking to this kid a couple of years below me. And he was like, yeah, I've got a few garbage pell kids. Like, I could, the back of my house. So after school, we went round to his house and they were stuck to his wardrobe door. So I tried peeling them off, but they wouldn't come away without ripping. And I think like back then I would have got about £2.50 pocket money. And I was like, listen, right, do you need this wardrobe door in your life? Like, <laughs> fucking anything, you, 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 were like, you were like the fucking, the Zamo of collecting <laughs> garbage bags. Like, this wardrobe door is just holding you back, mate. I can take this <laughs> off your hands now, £2.50 cash. And we shook on it and I sent him to go and get a knife from the kitchen and he unscrewed it. So I was only about like 10 years old. I'm struggling my way down his stairs with his wardrobe door which was when his mum came home from work, <laughs> demanded to know what the hell was going on. And he explained, I've just sold this kid my wardrobe door. And quite fairly, she like said, go and reattach it to the wardrobe. And 
get the fuck out of my house. <laughs> if that had happened, if I'd have done it a couple of seconds earlier, like I'd, I'd still own that wardrobe door. I was that fanatically obsessed with them. Um, <laughs> then when I was in my early teens, that was when they were showing sort of, uh, what was it, movie drone. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I obsessively taping a lot of stuff, either comedy or horror back then. But I'd always take movie drown because it was always a keeper. Um, and when they show Society, I read a write-up of it in um, like the TV Times or whatever, or I read something somewhere about how you know extremely gross a film it was. The descriptions of it, I was like, this is perfect for me. Like it's going to be great. So I taped it, and when I watched it, I found it really disappointing. I gave up on it about twice. I didn't get it. There was like this subtle comedy in the dialogue which when I watch it now I understand but as a, as a teenager I was just like this is just boring like where's where's the where's the horror and I nearly taped over it but before I did I gave it one last go and it got to like last 25 minutes and it was just pure joy so when I was very young I got very sort of uh first time I saw Monty Python like blew my mind that was like one of the biggest creative inspirations of the, the idea that these blokes it was like very white middle class, should have been very boring doctors and lawyers and this job where they just came up with the weirdest shit they could imagine and created it. So it would have been around about the same time when I first saw Meaning of Life and that idea, oh, let's have a character who eats so much, he explodes kind of thing. Um, and then watching the society gets to the end of it and it's like somebody came up with that idea and, you know, expanded on it and grew it from a seed and then got other people on board and said like yeah how about we make this and you know financial backing or finding actors willing to participate in it and it's like it changed my whole way of watching horror and from then on i was more into sort of like i wanted to see the most extreme things that people had made and it never it never seemed after that that it was like a bit weird to be watching these kind of films because, you know, I've, I've ended up seeing some things where it's like, oh, okay, maybe maybe don't want to watch that again. I mean, that I, that's, I mean, that came right at the end of the 80s. And I think that was a really interesting time for not just horror films, but a lot of films that were kind of leaning towards the dark, darker side of things. I think, you know, people had kind of finally, you know, cottoned on to the fact that, you know, Reagan and, and Bush economics weren't particularly great for anybody. And I think that there's a lot of stuff. And but I, but I think what's what's really great about something like Society and a lot of those kind of films from that era, is that I think if you're doing a similar thing now, it would be kind of it would be much more of an art house thing that ten people would see. You know, whereas I think with yeah. Society, what you get, you get the full package. It is a kind of partly throwaway teen black comedy sort of slasher type thing it is partly uh you know very much a, a an exploration of that you know it's very satirical of you know i'm looking at the politics of that era it's very anti-capitalist and all that kind of stuff and this idea of the the privileged elite but it's also just you know in terms of the effects it's just incredible to look at as well and i, yeah, yeah. I think i think it's kind of like you know it's almost like that Paul Verhoeven argument as well in that you know it's it's easy to do a kind of you know appeal to a kind of BBC4 Guardian audience by doing a kind of art house thing but it's it's more it's it's much more of a challenge to do a mainstream film which deals with those things as well but does it in an entertaining way that we, that you can read on different levels so if you don't want to get involved with the kind of politics or whatever you can just watch it as a splatter film or you can engage with that i think it's that's much more difficult it's it's an easier job to aim your kind of that intelligentsia because you know you're not really no one's going to question what you're doing but if you're trying to put something out to a mainstream audience it's like you know in, in say it's the same as comedy i think as much as i love Stuart lee it's kind of like he knows his audience you know they aren't going to present much of a challenge for him whereas yeah. you know to me something like harry hill is far more intelligent because he can put it out at yeah. five o'clock on itv yeah that's people true. are eating yeah. the tea you know it's 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 much more that's a tougher gig really but and so i've always impressed with horror films that can appeal to different audiences 
I found, uh, is it Men? Yeah, men. yeah, yeah, yeah. Men. I found that very similar to Society. After watching yes. it again, like that, and then when I sat and watched that, and it's like, and going into it knowing what it's going to be about, and it, it had that sort of like, you know, social sort of yeah. uh, commentary, and then to get to the end of it, and then be like, whoa, and then there's that on top. Yeah, it was a brilliant <laughs> film. With that sort of like the same feel to Society. After, um, so when I got to what, like my mid-teens, no, sort of like early 20s, and it was that period where they started changing everything from VHS to DVD, and the price of videos plummeted. It was pretty unfortunate. It was the the, the Vipco, Vipco Vault of Horror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That came at that. It came out at that point, and it was unfortunate for them because they all just went straight in the bargain bin. So I was going into town on my day off work and just coming home with carrier bags full of like you know this generation of like horror stuff and also at the same time all the vhs's were dropping down like the, the evil deads and the george romero stuff which didn't get shown on telly that much there was there wasn't the internet opportunity to find those films i was just coming home with bags of them and just spending my days sat getting stoned and you know just plowing through all of these like brilliant brilliant films and then so the the, the extreme stuff that went along with that as it got to sort of like my mid-20s it's then what became like what became known as torture porn, which isn't a phrase that I like because it makes me feel like a bit of a <laughs> But I really did enjoy that kind of area of cinema. I can still sort of sit and watch some of the Saw films. And I saw one of the Hostel films not back not long back ago, and I don't think they've like, you know, aged too badly. I still think they're pretty entertaining. But I really enjoyed The Human Centipede. <laughs> I think those films are just <laughs> they're superb. Like and it, it's it's that kind of thing. If you know whatever his name is, Thingy Six, had have made that film on his own, I know what I'm going to splice a couple of people together, ass to mouth, and see if a turd can work right through. But that's not how it was made. A load of people came on board and made it, and it's taking an idea and then bringing it into. So then the reason why Human Centipede Two is really disturbing is because that is about one man trying to make a human centipede, which is you know. And then make the film. It was I don't know. I still find them very entertaining. And I know that Human Centipede Three is supposed to be one of the worst films ever made, but I, I haven't watched any films. I'm I'm willing to admit it. <laughs> yeah, I'm still enjoying. Well, um, talking uh, talking about sort of more extreme forms of cinema, or and 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 sort of angling towards kind of torture porn in a way. It's time to introduce the film we're going to be talking about today which is Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, directed by Tony Randall. The vision is renewed. The power is reawakened. The fear is reborn because they have returned time to play hellbound hellraiser 2 when was the first time you came across this film i would have seen him in my early teens when i was sort of getting through uh the sort of like 80s horror stuff. But there were a couple of films that my mum my, my and dad didn't let me watch till I was over the age of 10. Uh, one of them was Alien. I was allowed to watch Aliens, but not Alien. I wasn't allowed to watch the Hellraiser films. And I think when Silence of the Lambs came out, I had to wait a few years before I was allowed to watch that. Um, but they're the three franchises that have like stayed with me as like my favourites. When it comes to villains, you're not beating Hannibal Lecter. Hellraiser's just gorgeous. And you know, aliens, alien. Um, and I remember being very into Hellraiser because I had this big poster of Pinhead on my wall as a teenager, which I thought it'd be a good idea to hammer actual nails into the in his face. But if you hammer like 30 nails into a small area of a wall, it just destroys the wall. And as I was hammering them in, I could hear the plaster collapsing behind the wallpaper. My dad went crackers. Um, but I was proud of like my, my little sort of pinhead sculpture on the wall. But then as I was again through all of the other sort of horror films and moving out into the different bits, I kind of forgot about Hellraiser and didn't think about it for years. And then uh, my best mate moved to Guernsey 
Um, and because of the tax rules, he ended up with a lot of sort of like disposable income. And I went over to see him one weekend and he'd bought this like home cinema 3D thing. It was when 3D TVs looked like they were going to become something. So we spent the weekend just like getting drunk and watching 3D horror films. There was one bit where it was like, oh, I've got the what's supposed to be the worst film like horror wise ever made. So we watched a Serbian film on a 3D home <laughs> cinema. <laughs> Uh, and at the end of it, I was like, I don't think you should have that in your house, mate. <laughs> <laughs> that was my line when it came to the extremes. And I don't want to watch that again, especially not in 3D. Um, but when it was at his house, he had a lament configuration on his uh, shelf. And I was like, that's cool as fuck. And he was like, oh, watch this. And he opened it. Uh, and instead of unleashing hell, he had DVDs in it. It was like a DVD box set. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, I've watched him loads. He's like, have it. And I was like, oh, I love Hellraiser. Like, I've not, not seen it for years. And when I got home, I watched Hellraiser. And like most people, when they first watch it, it was such a delight to find out that it was nothing like what I thought it was going to be. The, the whole, so I think what would have happened is I'd have seen Hellraiser as a kid, but then watched Hellraiser 2. And Hellraiser 2 is, for me, the better film. So when I watched Hellraiser, I then put on Hellraiser 2 realizing as i watched it that i would have watched that one a lot more often because everything was coming back in my memory what happened but it was the first time i guess this would have been my like my early 30s and it was the first time i'd watched a film in decades that actually scared me like i was watching it maybe it would have been a child thing like going back to my childhood of watching stuff but the whole atmosphere of the film and i think it's this i think it's something to do with like the, the build-up of scenes at the start of the film that puts you into a frame of mind or it does for me, where it starts off, you've got the the scene where Elliot Spencer turns into Pinhead, which then's like, you know, the backstory bit. Then you've got the bit with Dr. Chenard doing the brain surgery on the woman as he does that little monologue about the mind being the labyrinth and it all goes a bit Louis Borges and dead claustrophobic. And then you've got the bit with the spooky hospital and uh, like any horror film set in a spooky hospital is a winner for me. That's like a perfect setting. To go off here a bit, I think Hellraiser 3 uh, is such a abomination <laughs> that I, I, I replaced that with Jacob's Ladder. Jacob's Ladder is my Hellraiser 3. I don't care if it's like a standalone, completely different film. It's it's so cin- sim- cinematically similar. It, it may as well just be in the canon. I don't, then I, I, don't, I don't mind Hellraiser 3, to be honest. I mean, yeah, there's a big drop-off point after the first two, but I... I think if 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 only for the two the the, the new Cenobites, I think you're getting that. I, I would I would still maintain that Hellraiser yeah, three is worth watching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is worth watching, and I can watch. I can happily watch it, but it's a completely different thing. Yeah. And I think what bothers me most about it is the choice of making Pinhead sarcastic. Like, yeah, yeah, why, yeah. A why a character like him would choose to, you know, also use sarcasm on top of, you know all the horrible stuff he's going to do to you. Yeah, it just makes me feel very sad uh, watching Hellraiser 3. I have to keep it detached from the rest. Then it gets to the scene where... Oh, yeah, yeah, the the, the mattress. And I think when it got into that bit when I was re-watching it, it doesn't matter how hardened a, a horror film fan you are, it's very difficult to watch that scene without flinching. And I think it's to do with the... The perspective of the people witnessing stuff you've got the guy hidden behind the curtain who's trying not to be seen watching the doctor's reaction to the bloke sat on a couch removing his own flesh with a cutthroat razor and the look on the face of the bloke behind the curtain is the look that you have on your face when you're watching it you're just like what the fuck is going on here and then julia cotton emerges from out of the 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 mattress and I think after that point, I was I was immersed in it then. Yeah. Unlike I had been watching a horror film for a long time. And then as it goes into the labyrinth, uh, this, there's probably a term for this <coughs> that I don't know, but you might. But it, it feels like there's two types of horror, where there's the horror of the thing that you don't want to happen. And then there's the horror of the thing having happened and dealing with the consequences of it. And usually the thing that you don't want to happen is someone killing you. 
so this is why I'm not a big fan of slasher films and stuff, because it feels very superficial. It's like there's a guy with an axe and he's running around and you, you better not let him catch you. Otherwise, he's going to like chop you up and stuff. And you watch that kind of film and that's where all the adrenaline is and, and the excitement. And you're like, don't go down that cellar or, you know, don't turn that corner and he's behind you and stuff. But then once they catch you and they chop you up and that's it. You've got the sweet release of death. It was bad for a bit, but you're dead now, so it's okay. I mean, not wanting to die is a pretty basic human frame of mind, I think. And also, you could watch any film with with that in mind. You could watch like Sleepless in Seattle and stuff, and like be like, "Careful crossing that road, Tom." Or you know, are you sure you like you cooked that chicken all the way through? Nobody wants to die. <laughs> but then it's the films where the bad thing happens. And you don't get that release of death. You're dealing with the consequences of something awful. Like the most extreme one, I'd say, probably threads. Like watching a really mundane kitchen sink, Coronation Street style film. And then the worst thing that could possibly happen happens. Although it's not the worst thing that could possibly happen. Because I think the worst consequence of any film is Hellraiser. Because in Hellraiser, when you die, the nightmare is only just starting. And then you're going to get tortured forever. <laughs> and it's never to end. So when I watched Hellraiser 2 that second time, sort of in my, in my late 20s, early 30s, I don't know what the frame of mind it is. I think it's to do with that build-up of it, having watched the first one and then the build-up of it, and then to get into it, walking out onto the labyrinth, and there's the, you know, the Leviathan, and it just absorbed me. And I was like, this is just brilliant horror and there's not been another horror film that's occupied my imagination as much as Hellraiser 2 ever since then I think it's yeah it's a strange one because I think it's it's almost they those two the first two films really do stand out obviously from the 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 franchise diminishes after this but it's um you know it's something about I, I think objectively you could say that Hellraiser is a better film in, in many ways. It's kind of, it because it's a kind of different film. Obviously, it's 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 more controlled by Clive Barker. Clive Barker's there, and he's he's kind of in full control. It's his yeah. film, um, but it's almost like comparing um, Hellraiser and Hellbound Hellraiser Two is like comparing Alien and Aliens. Yeah. They both have their merits. I do think Hellraiser is the better film. But it's not my favourite. Yeah, no, and I was going to say, it, it's, it, 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 that, yeah, I, I would argue Hellraiser, Hellbound Hellraiser 2 is, it's, it, it, like you say, it is, it's my favourite out of the two. And I think it's because it has, it's got so many fucking great set pieces in. And it, it it's a it's bigger in scope. It's got, you know, Hellraiser is very much a dark, claustrophobic, shadowy f- a, a film about a, the most dysfunctional family ever with with demons. And it, it works. It's great, you know. Um, but Hellraiser two, Hellbound, Hellraiser two. That it really just it, it you know you can't get. Okay, it, it, they they didn't really have the budget or the effects to do what they wanted to do, but they they did pretty well with it, and the scope of it is enormous. We go we go into the hell dimension, and and even you know, like you said, all those scenes that you talked about about you know um, the bed, which is kind of you know a direct kind of reference to the first film when they're trying to get the bed up the stairs and he rips his hand open on the nail which causes Frank to come back and the bed being a place where sex happens you know all this kind of stuff is there and it's a continuation of that but yeah he, but the and the fact that we get in Hellraiser 2 uh we get you know Dr Chenard which is just an amazing I mean we'll get into that character uh, shortly because it's a fucking great character it's a brilliant brilliant Cenobite okay so um yeah so I think I think one important aspect of Hellraiser 2 but and indeed all the Hellraiser films is the Cenobites because b- before um 
I mean, obviously you had, uh, as mentioned on the last episode, we we talked about this, but it's, you know, in the 1930s, 40s, you had the classic Universal Monsters. Then in the 80s, you had that kind of run of masked weirdos like, you know, Jason, Freddy, Michael Myers, all of that. And they're, they're, they're fairly well cemented on people's brains. But then um, with something like Hellraiser and in particular uh, Hellbound Hellraiser 2, you have these new characters which don't seem to fit in any particular world we've come across before. And I think that Hellraiser kind of began to or at least attempted to drive a stake through the heart of the slasher generation in in terms of it creating something very new and sick and disgusting and sexual and you know and obviously clive barker was a gay guy himself growing up in sort of liverpool and coming from that sort of more working class background so you're really getting a very british take on that and it, it really does take the horror film like other films had done in the past and, and really turn it inside out but the cenobites those key creatures within this are absolutely key because i think they take all of that those aspects about our greatest fears and our secret sexual desires and you take this sweet spot that lies between the idea of pleasure and pain and also what you're presented with is something that it 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 gives us um you know quite a lot to look at it is very visceral and yet it also holds back as well it leaves a lot to our imagination and i think that i know you touched upon uh, the human centipede earlier on i'm i'm not a fan to be fair <laughs> but i i think that that is an example that that kind of just just gives us everything you know it's just there yeah. and there is a place for that but I like the fact that something is being held back with Hellraiser and Hellbound Hellraiser too. But the Cenobites are absolutely key. So we've got the classic Cenobites in this, and then we're introduced to a brand new Cenobite who we'll get on to shortly. But what's your kind of feeling about the Cenobites and what did they bring to horror? Um, no one ever smirked at Pinhead. Like, with, with that kind of with those makeup and the, the the special effects that are in those films, even though like some of the special effects are very old fashioned, even for when the film was made, but I'll get to that in a bit. Um, you know, you watch those sort of like the, the really sort of tacky rip off horror films of like the seventies where all the best bits of the film were already in the trailer, but you'd watch the whole film just to see the monster at the end. And it's just like a carrier bag on a string or something. <laughs> this is rubbish, low budget nonsense. Nobody ever saw Pinhead and smirked at him. He was just like the coolest monster. And with Clive Barker's thing of, you know, mixing the pleasure and the pain and the death and the sex to create such a horrific visual face that you can't take your eyes off because at the same time, he's fit, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he is. It is, it is. It is sexy. It's not nice, <laughs> but it is. He's just, he's gorgeous. He's one of the most gorgeous, horrible baddies. Everybody knows that Pinhead's the pinup of the Hellraiser films, but the people who know the Hellraiser films know that Chatterer is the man. is the one. And also Chatterer, without saying anything, in an almost silent film style, has got one of the best story arcs. In yeah, such a yeah, story. yeah, 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 yeah. That bit at the end, when the, the, the pillar revolves and you realise that he was a child, it's heartbreaking. Well, it, it, it suddenly, you know, the the Chatterer is, uh, out of all the Cenobites, I would argue the most disgusting. It's the most horrible sort of, you know, it's, it's it takes suffering to a new level. And then you get punched in the guts when you find out it was just a kid when that happened as well. It's, it, it's, it's nasty. It really is fucking horrible yeah. and heartbreaking and nasty. Um, and there's, there's the imagination part of it when you're holding something back and you're just thinking, my God, how, how, how did it come to that? <laughs> the poor lad. 
I mean, yeah. a Rubik's cube and ended up getting tortured. Forever. <laughs> <laughs> I heard a story uh, about um, Barry Norman was giving really bad reviews. Yeah, to yeah, yeah. Then he also slagged off Hellraiser 2. And then Clive Barker bumped into him in a corridor in the studios while they were making Hellraiser 2. And um, he grabs hold of him and drags him into this room where, uh, uh, I can't remember the name. What's the name of the fellow who plays in it? I always think it's Elliot Spencer. Doug Bradley. But, um, Doug Bradley. Doug Bradley. Well, he was in full makeup. Yeah, so he yeah. drags Barry Norman into this room. And there's Pinhead. And it's like, why aren't you supporting British horror films? <laughs> like, to actually have the, the villain there in front of you. And then he, he, I think he gave a bit of an apology after that. But you don't mess with Pinhead, do you? So. Well, yeah, I mean, that whole, that whole thing. I mean, because uh, it's weird because I was, I was writing an article about various things the other day. And one, one of the things I was writing about was um, Movie Drone. Because I think up until Movie Drone, the only person you had to give you any sort of recommendation on television was Barry Norman. And, and I, was, I was trying to make the point in this article about Movie Drone, which I loved, is that, you know, Barry Norman was a bit of a cunt, you know, and and, and, and I think he, I, I didn't like it because, you know, if it was the latest fucking Meryl Streep film, it, it'd be all over it. But as soon as anything came up horror-wise, he just looked down his nose at it. And I, and, and I think one of the things that Clive Barker said to him was, look, you know, A, why are you not supporting British films? This is a British film. Okay, there's American backing, but it's a British film. It's a British horror film. And it's, you don't personally don't like horror, but that's, that, that's irrelevant. You have to view and review each film on their individual merits. And, you know, I think Norman had to go away and sort of say, well, yeah, I, I was I'll hold my hands up there. But, yeah, they did. The, I think the deal was because they'd given Hell, he'd given Hellraiser a, a shit review. Uh, but then the BBC had said, well, can we send Barry Norman on set to do an on-set sort of report? And Clive Barker had said, well, yeah, he can. But the deal is he has to have a photo opportunity with Doug Bradley as Pinhead. And then around when that was happening then clive barker and the producer dragged him into a room and and kind of grilled him really which is you know good on him that you know you need to because he was completely for a lot of i think he was very unaccountable you know he just said what he liked you know it's the only sort of film program on television really that people are aware of and you know and he he kind of completely trash films he wasn't that or genres he wasn't that keen on so you know i i i I'm, i they should have just locked the room and not let him out <laughs> but i i what about okay so we've got the classic um uh cenobites return so we've got pinhead and chatter and uh, chatter um i think i mentioned but yeah we i had um nicholas vince on the last episode who played chatter in the first two films uh he's a uh yeah a really lovely guy but he he was telling me a story that um he was in a pub and uh it was after the first hellraiser film and his mate came in and introduced uh uh his mate introduced him to his new girlfriend and his girlfriend was like asking him what he did it's all you know i played like chatter in hellraiser and she just ran out the pub <laughs> so you know, but uh, he, he's very lovely. He's a lovely guy. But uh, I, I think, yeah. But I, I, I think my favourite aspect of Hellraiser Two, without a doubt, is Doctor Chenard. Uh, just his kind of story arc, because it's all kind of over in one film. But him going from this this sadistic, mad ass fucking doctor, and turning into basically. Uh, well, a, a huge, a massive penis, really. And I, I love the fact that um, you've got Imogen Borman, who plays Tiffany, the innocent mute in uh, Hellraiser, uh, Hellbound Hellraiser 2. And, um, you know, I, I, I was watching the Leviathan documentary and, and they were talking about Chenard and, and they were sort of saying to her, you know, it, it, because he's got this kind of attachment to his head and it is for all intents and purposes, a syphilitic penis, you know, and 
but it was the fact that she was so because she was quite young at the time she was so naive she'd not really considered what it was and they were, they were interviewing her you know 20 years on or whatever and she, and they were like they were talking about this giant penis attached to his head and she was like oh what was it a, was it a giant penis I was like, yeah of course it fucking was <laughs> look at you <laughs> The bit with the brain drill going yes. into the back yeah, as it attaches, and he does his crazy little dance scream. Oh well, yeah! But like how we get the foreshadowing of that right at the beginning when we're introduced to Shinard when he's doing the uh, operation on someone, and we see the similar sort of tool going in, and he's kind of oh, it's a nice little reference to that. And but I like the fact that his voice because he's got that thing. Uh, and we assume it's still burrowing into him somehow. But every time you see him later on, his voice has got that. It it, it kind of vibrates, and it, oh, it's it's a really brilliantly realised character, I think. And I, and, and I, you've got to love Ka- Kenneth Cranham as well. I mean, the last time I'd seen him in anything before this was Shine On Harvey Moon, <laughs> and then he's he's like literally <laughs> turning into a fucking giant penis monster, and. And I love the fact that he went up for this um, and they offered, he was offered a Shakespeare play at the same time, you know, on, on the stage, you know, and um, and I think uh, he'd been offered this, but he was still kind of umming and ahhing what he wanted to do, whether he wanted to do this film or do the Shakespeare play. And I think he bumped into Gary Oldman, uh, who at the time, and he told Gary Oldman, and Gary Oldman was like, "Fucking hell, Hellraiser! You know, you should do that sort of thing." But, uh, but I, I love the fact that Ke- that what really swung it for Kenneth Cranham is that um, he was walking around, and he went, he was after some antique curtains, and he went to this this shop that sold antique curtains, and uh, he decided he was going to do uh, Hellbound Hellraiser two purely because they were paying enough money so he could buy these curtains. The <laughs> Shakespeare play weren't paying enough dosh, so he did. Uh... But I think he, he does a brilliant job though as well. I mean, you know, actors can get sniffy about horror, but he he gets really on board with it. And that makeup job was, you can imagine, it would have been a fucking nightmare. And I know there are a couple of occasions where he sat in the chair for hours getting this makeup on and then they just didn't have to do have time to do any filming that day so that must be fucking soul crushing you know my, my favorite villain in it is uh julia cotton yeah i mean i love the bites and they make the film but I th- when it comes to like you know she's she's the equivalent of uh ellen ripley when it comes to strong female villains she's just incredible like in the first film because it was made sort of like in that like 86 period and it's English, so that scene when they're going around to the house, and it kind of looks a bit like Crossroads. And she works, she walks on, she looks like a soap opera villain. She's got the bitch makeup and a face like a smack ass, and you know she's going to be an absolute nightmare. And in the first film, she is. And in the second film, where she's become this like queen of hell, and she, you can follow like a, a series of frames. Like she emerges from the the mattress with a face covered in blood, and then. She's, uh, you know, wearing the white suit and then Shanad wraps her up in bandages and you've got that shot where she's just stood in front of the wall with the, the blood imprint on the wall. And it looks like a Christmas card. It's that beautiful and, and well put together. And then there's, you know, the walk into hell and it goes all a bit ghost trainy and she's kind of giving Shanad the side eye. Uh, the bit where she pulls out Frank's heart and it's, it, it looks almost tacky where he's like, Frank's there looking all pissed off and she's holding his beating heart right in front of his face and just laughing at him. And she's such a, it, it's almost like Disney villain pantomime stuff. And the tacky lines that appear in later Hellraiser films, a lot of people don't like them in the Hellraiser 2 film, but I don't think any of them are misplaced. I think the no. dialogue that she has totally suits the character, you know, come at me snow white give it your best shot and all that sort of stuff she's such a bitch absolutely excellent yeah i i i think you're right you know she has definitely in the first film she's got that you know that dynasty type soap opera bitch um attitude and and i love the fact that kind of the nastier she gets the the taller uh, her hair gets and more severe in the first one but also i think in uh hellbound hellraiser 2 it's very much you know in in hellraiser frank come he escapes from hell he escapes from the cenobites and he just wants to 
avoid them and he, he doesn't want anything to do with them he wants to completely try and escape them and avoid them and i love the fact that that Julia's like, ah, oh, fuck it, I think I can take him. <laughs> she, yeah, yeah. First thing she does is kind of summon the Cenobites and just get her in, you know, we can, I, I can take this over. You know, she's fucking, you know, she's got some balls on her. Oh, are you? Yeah, yeah, don't mess. What's mm. the, what's it called um, when they used to paint scenery in the old oh, sort the of like, matte, matte painting? Yeah, the bit when they walk out onto the labyrinth. Yeah, and it's yeah, like, yeah. you know, it's, you know it's a painting. But it just it's just gorgeous. And like as a depiction of hell. You know, I think I, when I was saying before, when I watched it again and it scared me more than a, a, any film had scared me before. And it was there must have been like a little sort of child memory of having watched it as a kid. And it doesn't it's not that it's tacky. It's old fashioned, but it's old fashioned for when it was made. And it just looks incredible. And you, you totally buy into the illusion. It goes on forever. Yeah. It's just so well done. Yeah. And the well, the stop motion looks like it's a bit out of place, but at the same time, you know, the, the curling finger and the growing rose and stuff. And then there was a lot of that sort of stuff in the original film where uh, the scene with the bed and the falling feathers and it all goes a bit sort of Derricky Germany and like, you know, the art house side of it and stuff. They, you know, they've still got that element in it of Hellraiser 2, taking on different styles and it yeah. just fits out. Yeah, That's the thing about that. You get so much in it that other films probably won't get away with, where it just looked too jarring and out of place. Whereas in Hellraiser, like you said before, there's just brilliant frame and scene after scene after scene after scene. And it all comes together in this sort of like, just it's like watching a nightmare. It is, yeah. And, and it's not, and, and that sounds easy. And, you know, people talk about that as if it's just, you know, all you need is some, you know, uh, shadowy or dark lighting or whatever and and you know you can present a nightmare but it, it's not it's it's about taking something which is almost too terrifying to contemplate and presenting some of that so that some of it remains off screen some of it remains in our periphery and that is the the stuff that you take you know that keeps you awake at night because that that we're not getting everything yeah. we can imagine i mean you you can't you know we, we get glimpses we get glimpses of what that hell dimension's like and and we can imagine we can imagine how nasty and horrible it is you know and this you know we see bits of it with frank and his you know eternal torture and but you know that, that's the thing hell is whatever your imagine can imagination can conjure that is hell if you can imagine something the worst thing possibly imaginable, then that is there, and then someone else can imagine something worse. So that is what you're going into, and and right. I yeah, I, I, and I love the I love map map painting and things like that. I think it is. I I'm not dissing CG. I think CG works when we're not aware it's there. When you've got sort of backgrounds, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, but there is something very beautiful about that. Because I, I, I think, again, we've, we've touched upon this in the podcast before. I don't think there's anything wrong with a kind of film being aware that it's a film. And it is, it is presenting us with, yes, conceptually it's presenting us with nightmares. But also it's, it's really showing us the curtain. This is a fantasy. This is a production. This is not real. This is completely unreal. Might be dealing with these um, uh, unsettling concepts and ideas, but what we're presenting you with, it, it, if it looks real, then we're not doing our job correctly. It should look slight, slightly strange and slightly off. That's why I, I don't yeah. mind the weird sort of stop frame animation and the matte painting because that that is what that that world is it's 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 a complete fantasy yeah 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 fantasy yeah 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 definitely i mean yeah i'm not i'm not, I'm not too fond of the cgi most of the time uh probably because i mean i know that it costs a lot of money to do that but in terms of effort it's i i want to i want to see how things are sort of portrayed you know what I mean? I like to see the strings. I think I, don't want it to be I think CG works best for me. Um, 
you know, if you take, because I think, you know, it, 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 the idea of rubbish in CGI completely is wrong as well. But it's, so the CG works better for me when A, as I've mentioned, you, you're not really aware that it's there. But also, I think it works best when it's coupled with other techniques. I think, you know, whether you like Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films, that's a good example of not oversaturating CG and using other techniques like puppetry and um, forced perspective and things like that. It, it works because it feels real. If everything is just CG, then there is no sense of mass or weight and that becomes more unreal than yeah. than sort of stop motion animation because there's no it doesn't feel as though there's any love or any respect going into it sometimes the main, the main thing i don't like about cg is kids films and uh like so my kids have grown up over these last 20 years where the the, the children's cinema has been just bombarded with you know they seem cheap really formulaic they're all the same it's the same characters in different situations but then growing up in the 80s uh that being the only decade that wasn't either dominated by disney or pixar because it was actual film and it was like you know spielberg and lucas putting as much effort into films that were for children as went into the films for adults um but then also like you know john carpenter and uh people putting out films kids films that were acceptable for adults to watch and vice versa you know like a, a, a guy in his 30s could sit and watch labyrinth quite happily without a child in the room and you know everybody in my school had seen terminator yeah a couple of years by the time it came out there was no there were films that weren't acceptable for kids to watch but the majority of them were fine and it's like the, the last 20 years of people saying oh i mean you know you got like toy story and shrek which probably better than average but just so many crappy kids films coming out and the parents go oh well watch this one like there's like little hidden jokes in there that go over the kids heads just for the parents and it's like i'm not asked in ghostbusters when bill murray turns around and says this man has no dick that's the kind of thing you get you don't need to make things go over their heads because that's the kind of stuff that they're saying in the playground and the 80s just fucking did it perfectly with that kind of thing the, the kids films and the adults films that came out in the 80s that were just basically family films, and it worked and it's that's the only decade really where they really fucking went for it yeah yeah uh, yeah and i was saying, i i always use like the um the example of uh you know going slightly further back in time but you know the example of greece you know greece is was the classic sort of family kids film if you like but yeah that's it, it's fucking yeah. filthy greece is you know, they, they, they ain't talking about car mechanics <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah so um well um what uh, if so if there's someone had never seen hellbound hellraiser 2 what other than what we've talked about how would you go about recommending it to them why would you recommend it uh um i like i like things of like pure imagination or is uh, you know demonstrations of pure imagination as imaginatively done as possible and like i said before hellraiser 2 is like watching a nightmare more so than most horror films i've ever seen um and there are points of it where it's difficult to watch but it's not in the sort of like you know barely acceptable torture porn category because there's this beautiful aesthetic artistic element to it where you know you can look at the Cenobite and it's the most horrific thing you've ever seen but you still can't take your eyes off it and they ain't got, they're not bad guys either <laughs> the Cenobites that's still the best thing about the Hellraiser film Pinhead's only there because he wants to share something with you that you know he's really enjoyed and he think you might see so there's always that twist of where the horror lies the villain in all I'm not seeing all the sequels, but I think in all the Hellraiser films, the actual villain turns out to be somebody else other than, you know, what comes out of the box. So there's still good twists in it. And, you know, and it, it looks amazing. And also, it's just that little seed of imagination that Clive Barker came up with. 
And there's a lot of examples in the stuff that he's come up with, but Hellraiser's the the best one. And out of all of them, Hellraiser too. Yeah, the the you know obviously as I said, they had kind of American money backing it, you know, um, but it was you know they are essentially British films, and 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 I think what's I mean what's kind of weird about Hellraiser, and you get a little bit of it in in Hellbound Hellraiser too as well, is that you know it's it's supposed to be america you've got an american hospital and everybody's speaking with american yeah. accents but it's so clearly not fucking america you, know? yeah. you can see bits of the background so that's not fucking america but i kind of yeah. like that as well even though they tried to cover it up it gives it this unearthly feel that we're not where we're supposed to be and it's kind of like there's this sense of displacement there so i i even like that you know these kind of things yeah. that they had no control over really yeah so any any last thoughts on hellbound hellraiser 2 um the hellraiser universe which uh goes off in all sorts of angles with like the comics and stuff um i've not read too much into the comics uh i've read quite a few of them and some of them are good but the 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 books of hellraiser so there's the, the uh the original hellbound heart the novella which, if, if it wasn't for the film, I don't know if I'd have enjoyed as much because it's it stays so close to the film. Mm. Uh, obviously, because Clyde Barker made it, uh, but it does add a different element to it with the Cenobites and stuff, and you know, you get you get a slightly different angle on it. And then there was the remake of Hellraiser, which was supposed to be based on that original story that came out last year, which I thought was great. It was just good to see a, a decent Hellraiser film after, like you know however long it's been, 20 years, 30 years. Uh, I thought the, 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 the way they went about doing it was just smashing. Did you did you enjoy that one? I've not seen it yet. It's on my list. Um, I feel a bit remiss because I've not seen it. And I, and it's not that I've not seen it because I was a bit sniffy about it. I'm, I was well up for seeing it. I've just not... I'm waiting for it to come down in price and then I'm going to pick it up and, and get it for the collection. But, yeah, I'll... I'll watch anything really with Hellraiser's name attached to it. I just, you know, even if I know when you get into like Hellraiser four and five and things like that, you think, yeah, it's a bit ropey, but I still, I kind of like it. It's just, I, I just love that universe and that world and the idea that Cenobites are there. It is, it's, I, I, you know, it's endlessly fascinating to me. Yeah. I just want to see Cenobites. Is there Cenobites like fucking up people's days? Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> the Alien franchise. I just want to watch Aliens destroying humans. The, the, the last two Alien films were not good. Yeah. But it's still got Aliens, so I don't mind. Then there's this book. I mean, there's, there's the uh, the Scarlet Gospels. You're not going to be able to see this because you're listening to it on audio. Scarlet Gospels is very good, but it's a sort of like split story where you've got Pinhead trying to take over hell, which is great. But then there's the other, he's the detective character, Kai Parker's detective fellow. Can't remember his name, uh, but yeah, I'm in that one for the Cenobites. And then there's this. You ever heard of this one? The Sherlock Holmes Hellraiser book. I've, no, I've not come. I've not. It's not come across my desk that one. So I found out about this, and like I say, I just want to see Cenobites fucking everyone up. And if, if one of those people is going to be Sherlock Holmes, I was like, well, I've got to get a copy of this. Um, <laughs> I think it'd help if you were a fan of Sherlock Holmes because it's like again, fifty-fifty Hellraiser references. And Sherlock Holmes yeah, 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 yeah. about that bloke. It's odd. It's it's pretty weird. Uh, but yeah, there's just like loads of Cenobites in it. Like it's a massive world. It's a massive universe. You know, it, not just on screen, but like you say, books, comics, everything. It just goes on and on. And that's um, what happens when you when you come up with those kind of films where you do hold it back. Like like I was saying, Alien, Hannibal Lecter. And Hellraiser, the, the three original films, not including Manhunter, but the, the three original films of those series, they're all famous for, you know, the 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 main villain having very little screen time. And when you do something like that, people go away and their imaginations run wild. It's like, well, what did the alien really look like? Or, you know, what would Hannibal yeah. let when he gets out of that cell? And that's when you end up with this, like, sprawling world of, you know... I mean, I, I, no, there's not that many comics written about Hannibal Lecter, but he is one of those characters that gets in your head you know and that's that's what i like it's the stuff that you can go away and just think about for hours and hell raises infinite when it comes to that horror. Yeah, it, it, it's 
it's just a really fascinating form of horror. I I, I love it. There's something so um, appealing about it. It's it, it really does work. I think you know those first two films particularly are great. I, I, but I will watch anything and I will access anything with a Cenobites attached to it. Or yeah, um, well, you're, you're gonna love that new one then. <laughs> Because it's, it's the first one for a long time where they've gone, oh, actually, yeah, people want to see the Cenobite. Yeah. And then when it came out, people were complaining. So, oh, there's too many Cenobites in it. It's like, well, what are you what? talking about? <laughs> That's it not a sentence happen. I'm ever going to be saying. <laughs> there's too <laughs> many Cenobites. What's wrong with you, you fucking idiots? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Matt, so uh, do you want to give a quick plug for your books? Because I know you've got a few books out and stuff. All right, yeah, buy my books. Um, yeah, I've got uh, one called Vaudevillain, which was uh, sort of like the first 15 years of uh, what I was doing. Uh, and then uh, my second book came out sort of like over lockdown called Read em and Weep. Um, and if you get in touch with me and send me your address and some money, I'll uh, <laughs> um, I do PayPal. Find me on uh, Facebook, I suppose. Sit on Messenger. Matt Thick Richard, I think my name is. Can't yeah, remember. I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll stick a link on and stuff um, uh, when oh, we're really? yeah, 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 in the episode, and I'll uh, I'll I'll tag you in and everything. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, I just I just need to say um, if you can sort of follow us on Facebook. Um, I was going to say X as well, but I I think I might fuck that off. I don't know. I'm not. I'm definitely not fucking paying for it. Um, uh, but uh, anyway, follow us on Facebook, Instagram and all that and, and check us out, listen to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, it just remains to me for me to say uh, thank you to my guest, uh, Matt, a.k.a. Thick Richard Duffy. Um, and remember to call round next time. Make yourself at home. You look like you're dying for a nice cup of tea for terror. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future.